hello my night owls and my early birds. Welcome to another edition of The More the Merrier. For those of you who are new, this is Donna G. I'm here with you for the hour. Today the theme, the unexpected theme, is uh, social justice. Uh, Not planned, but this is just how it happened in terms of arranging my interviews this week. You'll hear from Cedric Martin and Kimberly Walker from Theatre of the Beat. They will be sharing about their audio drama, Yellow Bellies, which is about the Canadian Mennonite conscientious objectors during World War II. Fascinating area of interest to me as a fan of Canadian history, and I hope it is to you too. I'll also be speaking to Rochelle Richardson about her piece in Rendezvous with Madness. It is the first and largest arts and mental health festival in the world. Rochelle's piece explores being black, queer, and living with a mental health issue. It's called Queen Latifah, Give Me Strength. Fascinating topics here on The More the Merrier for you. Getting things started now with a track from Asata Shakur. The CD's called Still Dancing on John Wayne's Head from The Fire This Time. I'll be honest with you, um, I hate war uh, in all its forms, physical, psychological, uh, spiritual, uh, emotional, uh, environmental. I hate war. And I hate having to struggle. I, I, I honestly do because I, I wish into a world where it was unnecessary. This context of struggle and being a warrior and being a struggler has been forced on me by oppression. Otherwise, I would be a, a sculptor or a gardener, a carpenter. You know, I would be free to be so much more.
You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G. And joining me for this interview are Cedric Martin and Kimberly Walker of Theatre of the Beat. Kimberly and Cedric, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having us. Yes, thanks, Donna. It's great to be here. Cedric, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Tell, the, tell the listening audience who, what Theatre of the Beat is. Yeah, so Theatre of the Beat is a Canadian touring theatre company. Uh, don't know what that means exactly during a pandemic, but uh, what we do is we create social justice theater. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is we're trying to start conversations. So similar to what uh, your show is hoping to do, Donna, we're just trying to make it uh, as accessible to people as possible so that we can have these conversations and, and work towards a more ideally just world. Kimberly, can you tell me about your role as education and outreach manager? Sure, yeah. So um Pre-COVID, most of my job was facilitating interactive educational theater workshops in a women's prison here in Kitchener, Ontario. Um, and then the other part of my job is really anything that has to do with um, education. So sometimes we've done high school workshops or um, workshops for adults on different topics that use theater. I've also done a fair bit of acting with the company over the years since 2011, but um, right now my role is more on the education side. And Cedric, you are the artistic producer. Tell us about that role because that term producer has so many hats, it seems. <laughs> yes, that's right. So uh, previously, Theatre of the Beat had a general manager and an artistic director. Um, and so we just kind of combine both of those and put the uh, producer title on that. So uh, in a traditional company, I'm doing sort of both of those roles. Now, the play that uh, the audio drama that we're going to be talking about, Yellow Bellies, um, started out as a play. Uh, Cedric, can you tell me about the play version first? Yeah, so Yellow Bellies is about uh, conscientious objectors during World War II. Um, so we originally toured the show uh, across Canada, and uh, it was written by uh, one of the founders of Theatre of the Beat, Johnny Weidman, and then another founder, uh, Rebecca Steiner. Um, and, and what they did was they were researching about these conscientious objectors, primarily in the um, Mennonite faith, um, where were these conscientious objectors. Um, and so they partly were writing uh, in Ontario and partly in Manitoba and Winnipeg. Um, and then we brought it all together uh, and then we were able to tour this story and, and talk about this um, sort of underrepresented side of the, the World War II history. Kimberly, were you involved um, at that point with Theatre of the Beat as an education co uh, outreach coordinator? Um, at that time of the writing of the play, I was more focused on acting. So I, okay. I toured in the first two productions of um, Yellow Bellies. And we, we got to go to all different Mennonite communities across Canada, which was really interesting because some of the audience members had been conscientious objectors themselves or had grandparents who were. What was your knowledge of the Mennonite community before Yellow Bellies? Hmm. Yeah, I, um, I didn't grow up in a Mennonite community, but through university, I learned that there's really all sorts of, of Mennonites. I met a bunch of um, kind of modern Mennos, they called themselves, that their faith was mostly about social justice. And, and so I didn't know that it wasn't all bonnets and jam, although that is part of, of what some, some Mennonites um, are about. And so, uh, yeah, I guess that kind of spirituality that was connected to social justice and pacifism, I found really interesting. And so working with this company that has done some plays about Mennonites, I've learned a lot. 
bonnets and jams. <laughs> that's a great <laughs> that's a great term because that's you know that's what a lot of people think about when they think of Mennonites and yeah. it was years ago for me that I found out there was such a thing as Mexican Mennonites which I'd never yeah heard of before. I, I never even put the two together. So uh, lots to learn about uh, this community, definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, Cedric, uh, your knowledge of the Mennonite community. Yeah, so I uh, am the opposite of Kim. I grew up in uh, one of the modern Menno communities. Um, so my I'm a Christian and I attend a Mennonite church. Um, so uh, for me, this is uh, something that I grew up knowing about, but uh, just just briefly to speak to something that Kim mentioned, uh, I think really this story of these conscientious objectors prior to World War II, they were very um, uh, separated and, and intentionally so. And they, uh, I think after World War II is really where a divide sort of happened in their communities where they uh, really started getting more involved in, in things like social justice that Kim was mentioning. Um, and it, it really sparked a lot of different um, organizations that are wanting to get involved and support. Um, and so there's different companies like Mennonite Central Committee and Mennonite Disaster Service that are, their focus is helping others and helping communities and stuff. And so I think um, being able to look back at sort of the origin of some of these um, ideas that they came up with and, and why they were no longer just bonnets and jam, but they wanted to be uh, involved in, in the larger world. Can you tell me when the um, Mennonite Church of Eastern Canada uh, came aboard as as sponsor? Cedric, I'm going to toss that one to you. Yeah, so that was specifically with uh, the audio drama. Um, we uh, originally this was uh, co-created with uh, a sponsor from uh, a specific Mennonite church, Sean's Mennonite Church, uh, helped uh, make the original play and sponsor the original play. And then when we decided once this uh, pandemic hit that we wanted to keep creating theater. Um, uh, we had reached out to Mennonite Church Eastern Canada and they were excited about this project, about having um, something that could keep the arts alive and also in their uh, communities engaged because most churches weren't able to gather in person. So um, we were able to, to reach out to some churches and then there's also a bunch of individuals that have also been able to, to listen to this uh, audio drama. Kimberly, I'm curious about your, your work in, in, in the women's prison. Can you tell me more about that, please? Yeah, well, um, we've been working there for about three years and um, we do two shows a year with, with the women. So usually one is a devised piece that, that we create collaboratively together based on whatever topics people are finding important that they are learning about or wanna talk about. So we did a play once about identity. Um, we did one about cultural diversity and, and those were kind of co-creations. And then we've also produced some um, just just ordinary sort of plays. A lot of the participants um, say that, yeah, prison is a pretty hard place to be. And so having um, three hours a week where we can just make art together um, is actually really meaningful. And it's a chance to um, like build positive relationships with people that they might not otherwise um, talk to because there's lots of different kind of groups um, in prison and um, to practice some of those social skills and build confidence. Um, it, it can be it can be transformative and I've certainly learned so much there over the years um, that it's become a meaningful part of my life. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to when we're able to get back inside and keep creating theater there. Thank you. Cedric, uh, the audio drama. Mm -hmm. um, I know a lot of people in the arts are 
tuning more to the virtual world and and the audio world. And I myself, you know, early on in the pandemic, um, turned to YouTube to listen to audio dramas and and comedies from the past. So whose idea was it to turn this play into an audio drama? Well, I <laughs> I think it was my idea originally, but uh, it's, it's actually something when I came on board at Theatre of the Beat, I was interested in... Um, the audio drama uh, specifically for, for a multitude of reasons, but then COVID hit. And so it uh, made it more realistic. But uh, originally I was thinking, hey, it'd be kind of cool if part of a rehearsal process for a theater show would be to like live stream some uh, rehearsals or maybe a, a read through of a play um, in the early stages of her. So what might be interesting for folks at home listening to this or watching this. Um, and then once COVID hit, it was, okay, what what can help us create the best kind of product uh, while we're all distanced? Um, and an audio drama can do that because we can all have our, our microphones set up in different locations, but through the magic of editing, it can sound like we're all in the same place. And it, and it really still allows for the, the intimacy that we are hoping for with the show. Um, and and uh, it, it really created a new sort of uh, almost uh, environment for the piece because um, when we we're performing the show live, we wouldn't have quite as many sound effects or um, things going on in the background. Uh, we would kind of make those sound effects live. So in the show, for example, there's a sound of uh, rain falling. And so uh, we had a, a musician on stage that would be lightly hitting a snare drum uh, or there's supposed to be bombs exploding at certain points. And so then he'd loudly hit on a snare drum. But with, uh, with creating an audio drama, we're able to find these actual sound effects and create these sound effects. Um, and so in, in some ways it's, it's uh, a bit more intense for some scenes and then in other ways we can um, cheat it a little bit. I think that both the stage version and this audio version have uh, different strengths and so it's been fun to explore those differences. Kimberly, can you tell us about the cast? I know you play uh, Mary Lichty and Cedric, you play Rudy Enns, but can you uh, fill out the cast for us, please? Mm-hmm. So, um... Alvin and Rudy are the two main characters and they're both um, Mennonite boys, but from slightly different Mennonite cultural backgrounds, one being um, Swiss Mennonite and one being German. Um, and so they kind of meet each other and they're discussing, I, I guess, how they feel about being conscientious objectors throughout the play. And then there's flashbacks or, or different snippets from other um, relationships in their lives. So Mary Lichty is um, uh, a woman that Alvin is romantically interested in. Um, and so I play her, but I also play um, her as an old woman, kind of like looking back at, at this time in history. And then I also play a few other female characters and even some male characters actually as well. So because there's only three actors in the play, we've done a fair amount of creative kind of um, multi, what do you call it, double casting. Yeah. Um, and in the original production, we would each have our suitcase on stage and kind of change on stage stylistically to kind of show that we were people coming to put on this story. Um, so yeah, for me, it was a fun acting challenge to play so many different characters. Um, almost too many for me to explain all of them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's like Kimberly Walker as Mary Lichty and Ensemble. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Cedric, uh, tell me about uh, your character of Rudy Enns. Yeah, Rudy. 
So um, you you hear several monologues from him when he's uh, an older man reflecting on his life. And then we sort of jump from those monologues to kind of the moments in his life that he was talking about during during World War II. Um, and so that's that was sort of like a, a writing choice to reflect on. But also with the, the writing choice is a lot of the or all of the monologues that I say as as older Rudy are our verbatim theater. So we we uh, had interviews with conscientious objectors from World War II, and and these are word for word from what they said that uh, we've converted into a fictionalized story. But um, we yeah. So I mean, it was actually um, these older conscientious objectors thinking about their life, and then we fictionalized some scenes to sort of fit that. So um, my character is is inspired by um, these real conscientious objectors, um, and then I I go back and I. I uh, live out those fictionalized scenes. So um, Rudy is at uh, at the start of the play. He's uh, he has to go in front of a judge, and so that was also a thing that actually happened. And so uh, yeah, I think it's sort of uh, a mix of inspired by and fictionalized. But I, similar to Kim, also play a few other characters throughout the show because mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> we have a, a lot of different characters in this play. Kimberly, can you describe Mary Lichty to the listening audience? What mm, kind of sure. what kind of what kind of woman is she? Uh, well, she's like a starts out as a pretty obedient, um, average Mennonite girl who I think the gender roles at the time were pretty traditional. And I would say probably especially in church scenarios, but um, because of the war, she ends up um, writing to. Uh, to become a nurse. So she writes, she, 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 she gets a pamphlet in the mail with a, a picture of all these nurse graduates and she's really inspired about how she can help. And so she writes away and she actually ends up going to England um, to work as a nurse. And it's interesting to contrast her experience um, with someone that she was interested in romantically who was up north in the, in the work camps because he was a conscientious objector. And so I think um, she in the play ends up experiencing intense things and doing more than she thought she could. Um, and it's a period of like a lot of personal growth for her. And um, yeah, and then when she looks back on it um, as an older lady, she's she's really thankful that for that experience and for all she learned, but still has lots of questions about um, pacifism and what the right thing to do is in a complex situation like that. Her character faces a lot of challenges um, when she does go to to England. Um, mm. You know, she's she's a nurse and she's patching these soldiers back together. Where at the same time she's being challenged on the fact that you know the the men in her community, some of them are you know COs, you know mm-hmm. conscientious objectors. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about that conflict that that Mary had to deal with? Well, the one scene, um, there's a lot going on in it because she's also experiencing some misogyny and, and yes, exactly in the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And she's kind of put in a place where she has to defend the choice of her community, which is not to go to war in a situation like this, which was a very, very controversial um, thing to do at the time. And um, yeah, it's complex. I think she also uh, feels like because of her cultural background of speaking low German or Plautdeutsch, um, she's almost seen as a threat or as the enemy. And so there's a, there's a lot of complexity there that she's like 
Um, I think she finds times when she just keeps her mouth shut and kind of goes along to get along, but then other times when she um, asserts herself and asserts the Mennonite uh, philosophy of nonviolence and why that's important to her, and she is able to make a bit of a stand about that. And, I and if I might just add one comment there, it, it was really great to have a, a female director for this specifically so that we could think about, okay, we, this story is often uh, about World War II stories is always, always about the patriarchy and, and man's perspective. So it was really nice to have Sukhpreet uh, as our director and, and thinking about, okay, how can we still have these strong female voices involved in this show? And what does that character look like? And, and where, where are the moments of strength for Mary? Yes. And uh, tell me about your director. Yes, Sukhpreet uh, Sangha. She's uh, worked with us in the past, but she, she just joined actually for the audio drama. So she wasn't the director for the stage version, um, but she's uh, worked with Theatre of the Beat before. So she's uh, had experience with us and she uh, knew the story. Um, so she was able to hop on. And because all of the actors that were working on this had performed in the stage version, it wasn't about... Um, necessarily finding all of the beats. It was more so about, okay, how can we find um, ways to make this work as an audio drama? Um, and and what are our changes that we're going to make? And uh, we can't really, uh, we had to really uh, dive deeper, I think, into the characters because you couldn't just hide behind a, a quick costume change for some of the smaller roles. Uh, each of the individual ensemble characters needed to have a bit more depth so that they would um, flesh out and, and their their voices would come stronger through so that it didn't just sound like Cedric was playing three different characters, but uh, people weren't confused as much. So um, yeah, I think uh, it was really great working with, with Sukhpreet on this and um, just having a, an additional voice uh, in sort of the rehearsal room, if you can call it. We, we, we were recording over Zoom um, and then we would all uh, record locally and, and send off our, our individual files to our editor later. So how does she direct from a distance? <laughs> yeah, good question. So uh, basically we would um, run a scene over, over Zoom. Um, and then once the scene would uh, finish, uh, she'd give us some different notes and stuff like that. And so it was less about thinking about the blocking. Um, she would kind of talk through the the, the blocking or, or what the staging is like with our editor. But when we were in the, the Zoom room, she would just give us feedback about uh, sort of the delivery and um, our different choices and um, what might be going on around us. Because uh, unlike the stage version where we would have those live sound effects, all the sound effects are added in posts. So we'd have to remember, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm out in the rain and I'm unboxing. So there's going to be mud sloshing and I'm going to be slipping and sliding and I'm going to be breathing heavy. I can't just rely on the fact that I'm moving around on stage. I have to <laughs> bring all of that to it. And you recorded this in, in your closet? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. So I I live uh, right by the train station. And so the quietest room in my house is this uh, four foot by three foot closet. So I'd shove myself in there with all my towels to dampen any sound around me. And, and then the, our lovely editor, Michael, was able to fix it in post so that there was uh, uh, it all sounded like we were in the same uh, locations. Kimberly, where did you record? Also in my closet, but I didn't really? quite fit. Yeah, so I was like halfway in, hoping that if I had my head close to the clothes, then it would be muffled in the right way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There. yeah um, I think 
it's becoming a learn. It's become a learning curve uh, for me too, in terms of you know doing interviews uh, through Zoom. And mm. you know sometimes the recording is amazing. Um, I can do calls with uh, with Europe and sound fine, but then sometimes I have somebody who's in Northern Ontario and the sound is not so fine. Wow. And um, you just have to you just have to work through it and hope your audience you know understands that. Uh, this is this is how things are it's like and plus it wouldn't be any different if it was on a cell phone in downtown toronto where i am anyway (laughs) so i think people have become more forgiving but in terms of um the audio drama uh kimberly how was it for you uh in terms of vocalizing mary and all the other characters was it difficult for you to sort of get your wrap your head around the different voices knowing there's not you don't have anybody to relate to react to physically yeah yeah that definitely um took a bit more work especially not being able to rely on the characterization of the way that I was holding my body to convey that I was playing a different gender Mm. or or whatnot um so yeah it definitely took some practice there's one there's one scene where I do a fair bit of screaming and so practicing that scene over and over again to get realistic sounding screams and not freak out all the neighbors um, <laughs> it took some practice and, and some, some careful vocal technique. <laughs> yeah. Don't scare the neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, listening to this, to this drama opened up a whole new world for me in terms of, you know, Canadian history. And mm-hmm. it really planted me right there, uh, in the camp in England with your characters, um, Cedric, your character of Rudy ends. Can you just share some of the things he goes through um, in the camp? Yeah, so uh, I guess the work camps were uh, sometimes labor uh, lumber camps, uh, and so that's that's sort of uh, most of where this uh, story shows is in some of these lumber camps. Um, and uh, he he goes through quite a lot when he's there. Um, at the same time, his brother, uh, against the wishes of his parents, has decided that he's going to fight in World War II. So for, for most of the story, he's he's sitting there and he's worried about uh, how his brother's doing, if he's okay. Um, and then unfortunately, towards the end of the story... Um, Don't say... We we uh, find out more, but uh, yeah, you know. So <laughs> he's he's going through a lot, but um, he's worried about his family back home. He's uh, having to deal with a lot of different things. And one of the interesting things that happens to him is uh, he ends up becoming a cook. Uh, and so instead of spending all day out in the field and and uh, out working on cutting down trees and stripping the logs, he um, he ends up in the kitchen. And so that's that's one of the strange things that happens to him. So there's a lot of different things that go on. But uh, and then and another interesting thing to share is even though these folks are are pacifists, um, they like to spend their free time boxing, which was a, an interesting part of history that I didn't know about going into this show is um, these pacifist Mennonites like to spend their time boxing because that was one of the biggest things that was popular at the time was uh, folks would listen to boxing on the radio. And so then all these guys wanted to show off how manly they were. And so then they'd get together and (laughs) on their days off, they'd be boxing. Yeah, I found that interesting too, that these Mennonites uh, were boxing. (laughs) Um, The discrimination that they faced um, locally as well as wherever they went in the various towns um mm-hmm. was brutal mm-hmm. yeah so uh i mean 
I, I will speak that uh, they did face a lot of discrimination because it was uh, very obvious that they were conscientious objectors because basically most of the men that were of uh, that age and of that fitness were serving in World War II, uh, partly because of some conscription, but also partly because Canadians felt the duty at the time. Um, and so when they'd go into town, they would face discrimination um, or they would uh, not be served depending on where they're going. Um, but I, I will mention just just briefly that uh, though they faced discrimination, they were able to to work in these work camps because of the, basically their white privilege and um, some Asian Canadians, for example, at the time, because of the fact that they were Asians, they were they were um, rounded up, and instead of being able to go into work camps, they were put into these um, basically concentration camps that we had here in Canada, or these internment camps uh, they were called. So. Um, Yes, they, they did face discrimination. And so I think that uh, for Mennonites today, uh, it means even more that we need to stand up and, and voice when we see discrimination against other folks. Kimberly, in your role as um, Education Outreach Coordinator, um, there are some guides as well to go along uh, with this audio drama. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, that's right. We, we created three kind of um, study guides that. Um, groups can purchase to, to use if they want the audio drama to be going deeper into discussion about some of those social justice themes. So um, yeah, they include activities and reflection questions and little bits of extra historical information um, just to get just to get deeper conversations started. So there's one for each um, each episode. So for example, there's a, a, a scene in the beginning of the play where Rudy has to go in front of a judge to kind of explain why he deserves to be a conscientious objector and um, have his rationale for his beliefs. And it's under quite a lot of scrutiny. And um, one of the a sample activity in the curriculum package is that um, there's a bit of a role play where students can, can be asked the same question that the judge would ask about uh, what do they believe about pacifism or war and what would they do? Um, and so these kinds of interactive uh, activities really help get, um, just get, get the learning to go deeper because I think anything that's interactive and engaging like that is a lot more memorable and sticks and feels more relevant and real. Cedric, how has uh, the drama been doing? Um, are, are you getting more individual ticket purchases or are you getting organizations purchasing tickets yeah. to the to the drama? Yeah, that's a good question. So we've we've probably about had about half and half, half sort of churches or schools or different organizations purchasing this and then about half just individuals finding out about this and they wanting to, to find it for themselves. Um, but for example, I was... Uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago at a, at a high school that um, they were inspired by this idea. And so they were studying it in their high school drama class. And then they were going to create their own audio drama because they couldn't put on a school musical this year. Um, so uh, it's been neat for me seeing the different uh, locations that we've had it. So in other examples, we've had it in this uh, long-term care home um, in, in Ontario that had uh, 350 residents. And so they were able to broadcast it to all of their residents. Uh, so they had some something to, to listen to during this pandemic. Um, and so we've had some churches, some schools, and then this long-term care home, um, and then a bunch of individuals. Kimberly, have you had any feedback from uh, listeners who maybe were were nurses in, in various wars that, uh, that helped you develop your character or just, you know, any comments that they've made? Have you had that? 
There was one play, one show we did in Winnipeg a couple couple years ago where um, one of the, a woman came up to me afterwards and she said like, okay, Mary Lichty, like those letters you wrote, like I remember her. And, and it was someone who had known that person years ago and was saying like, oh, you did get these things right. And so, I mean, I'm not sure that really answers your question because it wasn't a nurse. Oh, yes, it does. They were people who had known her as a nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that was neat to, to play someone who was real and have someone recognize her. Yeah. Um, years ago, I worked with, uh, with with seniors and there were these senior ladies and one was, you know, sharing how uh, she was on a battleship. And, yeah. <laughs> and I was, yeah. you know, you look at her and you see this, this sweet old lady and she's, you know, telling me about, you know, her activities in World War II. And it's such a huge disconnect, mm-hmm. you know, looking at the way she she was now as to what she did in the past and, you know, the things that she experienced during the war that oftentimes gets overlooked, that there were women, you know, mm-hmm. out there with the men as well. In every war, there are always women um, there, whether they're um, uh, acknowledged publicly or not, they were there. Yes. So, yeah, um, so I'm, I'm, I love the character of Mary. So how can people get in touch and um, get tickets for Yellow Bellies, uh, Cedric? Yeah, if you just head over to our website, uh, theaterofthebeat.ca, uh, theater spelt the Canadian way with the R-E, so Theater of the Beat. Um, and, and we just sell it right there for individuals um, for $18, they can find it there. Or if you're in a, in a group setting or um, you'd want to purchase it so that many people can listen to it, or if you need the study guides for whatever uh, you're looking for, we have different pricing for, for larger groups so that it's hopefully a bit more accessible that way. So uh, for example, the, the large 350 people didn't all have to pay $18, they could just pay it for the orga- organizational price. Where does the name Theatre of the Beat come from? Um, well, a, a few different places. Our founder, Johnny Weidman, um, was really inspired by the Beatniks. So the idea of being kind of on the road and making art um, was a big part of the original philosophy, um, as well as the idea in theatre of taking a beat to kind of pause or reflect or take a breath. Um, yeah, I would say those are kind of the main influences. Mm-hmm. Great. And uh, Yellow Bellies, wonderful play. Uh, Cedric, not to take away from Yellow Bellies, but what do you, what does Theatre of the Beat have, have in the works? Yeah, we're right now we're working on a, a brand new show. Uh, it's called Unmute. Uh, and this show is dealing with the impact of a pandemic on gender-based violence. Um, so right now there's been uh, sort of an uptick of uh, gender-based violence or, or domestic violence, domestic abuse. Uh, and so this is sort of a response to that. So it's, um, uh, if this was a traditional theater show, we'd call it a form theater play where uh, it gives an opportunity for audience to watch the show and then uh, offer some observations and potential interventions afterwards. Uh, and since we're doing this play virtually, we're going to do it over Zoom. Uh, so audiences can can watch the show first over Zoom. Uh, and we're going to have our actors all in their own homes acting it out over Zoom. And then audience can offer some different interventions, uh, potential changes to have a better outcome. Um, because that's sort of the style is that the play intentionally ends poorly for the characters so that the audience can help intervene. So we'll do it over Zoom. And then we're also going to create an audio drama version of as well so that people can uh, listen to it uh, on their own time as opposed to attending a specific Zoom night. 
for those people who are maybe listening to this and have never, um, you know, not it's not the listening of the audio. It's more how how do I listen um, with more than just my phone? Can I? How do I do this on my television, for example? Uh, yeah, to listen to it on your television, for example, if you were to uh, purchase Yellow Bellies, uh, or uh, you could uh, download it onto your computer, and there's different devices that help you. So you could either plug in an HDMI cable into your television and listen to it that way. Uh, or if you have those devices like Apple TV or Chromecast, you can cast straight from your um, computer to your television or from your phone to your television. Uh, for our Zoom performance, it'd be sort of the same deal uh, with Unmute if you... Um, have different devices like an HDMI cable to plug it into your television, uh, or you could Chromecast it or use your Apple TV. Um, so those are a few different options if people don't want to listen to it on their computer, but you can also download it on your phone and, and plug it in while you're driving and listen to it like you would normally listen to a podcast. I used a, a Cast 2 app and did sort of, uh, you know, screen sharing nice. uh, with my phone just to just to have increased, increased audio Perfect. Uh, for me. So I think that's some of the things that more people will be doing and have to yeah. learn as we as we move forward. I understand that you've just switched to, to podcasting as well, Donna. So I've been appreciating that uh, <laughs> you're not just on the radio anymore, that you can also listen to it on podcast. So I was listening to you on Spotify, for example. Thank you. I just set that up. You know, I had a, yeah. a lot of uh, my young fans were going, you're not on podcast. And I said, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've so, been appreciating it. So thank you. <laughs> I finally did it. So thank you, Cedric Martin and Kimberly Walker for joining me by Zoom and sharing about Yellow Bellies presented by Theatre of the Beat. And uh, information again, theatreofthebeat.ca. And they're sponsored by the Mennonite Church of Eastern Canada. CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. Stream CIUT at www.ciut.fm. Rochelle Richardson is a Black queer playwright and advocate for mad, mentally ill, and disabled communities. She's one of three selected participants in Buddies in Bad Times 2020 Creators Unit. She's also the co-artistic director of Low Hanging Fruit. Her latest endeavor, Queen Latifah Give Me Strength, will be part of this year's Rendezvous with Madness Festival, which runs October the 15th to the 25th. Rochelle joins me to talk about Queen Latifah Give Me Strength. Rochelle Richardson. Where did the title Queen Latifah Give Me Strength come from? Um, well, there's two answers to that. To that, uh, The main answer and the one that the play is about is uh, just kind of the comparison that I would get to Queen Latifah growing up. Um, I remember, I mean, it's, it's in the play, um, or I guess now the media version, but uh, there were kids who would come around me and they thought it was a compliment to say I was like Queen Latifah. They thought that was like shorthand for saying I could sing and I was beautiful. But really all it meant was that they were just comparing me to the closest black person that they enjoyed or liked. And so I had a really tough problem with that, but I also really valued Queen Latifah and I, you know, kind of thought of her career trajectory as my own. 
Um, so if I was like, oh, I want to sing, I wonder what I could do. I would think about the roles that Queen Latifah has had. And if I wanted to be in movies, I'd be like, oh, what has Queen Latifah done? What roles has she done? Um, and it was a really complicated thing to both hate someone, but also feel like I had to follow in her footsteps, but also kind of love her at the same time. Um, so that's the like answer that goes with the play, the or the the media piece now. <laughs> uh, but the other answer is it's a line in Bob's Burgers. And I guess it just kind of like stuck with me. <laughs> and I realized after like watching Bob's Burgers again, and I was like, oh, oh, I did that. That's cool. I like Bob's Burgers. <laughs> I value what he says. That's, that's chill. So you know, the, the sentence Queen Latifah give me strength is like already streaming and like is viral because it's a line that Jean says in Bob's Burgers. Okay. Um, <laughs> you, you mentioned two incarnations of this play. What was it of this work? What was it previously and what is it now? So originally it was meant as a solo show. Um, I did, you, um, I used it to apply for the Emerging Creators Unit at Buddies and Bad Times. And there was a version of it that I was working with um, or working through with Catherine Hernandez uh, from Be Current and the rest of the cohort of the um, Emerging Creators Unit. Uh, but then COVID happened and everything kind of changed and um, the like, Mm -hmm. Tell me more about the, the Buddies uh, Emerging Creators Unit. Sure. Um, yeah, so that was a, uh, a program that I was in with um, three or four other people, five other people. Um, and it was a really great experience. It, um, it was an opportunity for a bunch of emerging artists to get together and talk about their work and kind of dramaturg for each other. Um, things did get a little bit confusing with, you know, things coming up with, with buddies and, and things coming up uh, with COVID and also things coming up in, you know, the world um, and, you know, Black folks demanding more. And so conversations definitely shifted um, and demand changed and it was kind of hard for, I think, all of us to kind of move forward in the same way that we were. It was also a really hard time for me too, just because before even COVID started, I was working like a job that was just like sucking out my soul. Uh, so it was a very interesting thing to try to be authentic and, and speak from my heart at the same time that I was like pretending to be somebody else to survive this job. Um, that was asking me to be somebody else. So yeah, it was an interesting time um, being part of the Emerging Creators Unit just because it was about a lot of like showing up and being authentic and, um, you know, looking back, uh, thinking about your ancestors, a lot of training and, and um kind of taking things in as yourself and then kind of like putting them out as an artist. And I learned a lot, uh, but I, I was also struggling with finding that balance between 
like the artists and myself. So. Mm -hmm. So this work is part of Rendezvous with Madness. So what is the work now? Uh, Yes. So Rendezvous with Madness, I um, applied with the same work and I let them know the intentions of what was going to happen with the Emerging Creators Unit. And um, again, the world shifted. And so I had a conversation with them saying, uh, actually, I had, you know, we, I talked to them and they also uh, talked to us about how we, are, we were free to kind of do whatever we wanted with our pieces um, and how they were going to support us. And I just thought of this piece as an incarnation of like everything that it was supposed to be and everything that it kind of felt like now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it became a, see, I, I, it's kind of like a short film, but I'm also like, I'm a fledgling filmmaker. So I don't think it's a film. I think it's more of an art installation, which wasn't its its intention. Like it was, I mean, it's supposed to be an installation. and it's also kind of a poetic arts piece um, and like it exists as snippets of time. I feel like it's kind of all, it's like me testing the waters of like what kind of art I can try next and what I know from like before and just kind of like me feeling my feels, but definitely very, um, concentrated and collected on uh what the story how the story is going to 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 move forward uh so it's definitely just like a snippet of this piece and whether the piece is going to continue as a stage play or you know it might actually continue as it is now as the piece it is with rendezvous with madness because there was a lot of really cool things that i was able to do with this piece um yeah it's just kind of a, a snippet it's almost a reflection of the self-centeredness of kind of having to protect yourself and having to seek help um, and how self-centered isn't necessarily a bad thing. This piece is about a young Black queer woman navigating the healthcare system. And yeah. so so you've devised various uh, media to show this theme. So how exactly do you write this? Do you start by writing or do you start by just doing things and then editing them after? Um, It was a mix of both. I started with the writing. Um, Mm -hmm. I did kind of continue with the whole playwright uh, process that I'm used to. Um, And then when creating the film, I realized a lot of the things I did want to accomplish were kind of not going to be necessarily possible like I did I I wanted to kind of have more parts of me sitting in waiting rooms and me kind of like being more a part of the medical process I guess like seeing me in these spaces but you know with COVID and stuff even if I did have a doctor's appointment there wasn't really the time or the ability to kind of stop and take a little video because you know everyone's scared and distanced and um you know I honestly it just didn't occur to me to like whip out my phone anyway because I'm already 
you know, concerned about the space I'm keeping and other people are concerned about the space they're keeping. And I didn't want to like raise any kind of concern by like whipping out my phone and like trying to, to film anything. So it did start with me writing a very structured piece with like monologues and dialogue and all of that stuff. But then when it came to actually making the piece, it kind of ended up being kind of a cut and paste kind of collage of things. Um, I kind of took all of the imagery and all of the intention and all of the, um, the things that I wanted to create that were reflective that I could do in my home. And I kind of filmed all that out. And then I took the dialogue in my written word work that kind of fit with that and I kind of mushed them together. How long is this piece? Um, it's about 25 minutes. Mm-hmm. And work on this took how long? Um, <laughs> because you said because you had to rework it, right? So uh, that's yeah. a lot that's a lot of your that's a lot of your time. It is. It is a lot of my time. It's you know it's honestly it's really hard to say. I couldn't even say how long it took because you know I've been working on it there's been so many different iterations of it um like there's an argument to be made that it took like two days there's an argument that could be made that it took um like five months (laughs) that it Mm -hmm. took two years you know uh it was a lot of me staring and thinking and sitting and kind of like that weird artist thing that you do where you're just kind of considering the possibilities and because you're like trying to visualize it all in your head it doesn't even make sense to write it down. So it feels like procrastinating, but it was working. Um, So I guess the most accurate um, I could say is for this specific um, iteration of the piece, I probably have been working on it for three months. Have you gotten feedback about the piece? Did you workshop it? Did you have a dramaturg or someone else assist you so that so that you could stand back and view the piece in an, in another way? Um, I usually do when I work on my other pieces with mm-hmm. this one. I, not really. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, it is, it is the most, it's actually, like it's nerve wracking to be honest. Like if people see it and they're like, this is a hot mess. I wouldn't even, I wouldn't really be that offended because I'd be like, okay, well this didn't work. Um, I did, I do think of it as a workshop and like in a, and as an experiment, cause I kind of just like tried something really, really new. Um, I did show it to my partner who also helped me with the filming and his response is that it reminds him of the commercials from the nineties. In what and sense? He really likes it because some of the like <laughs> effects that I did and kind of, like there is a lot of reflection to the nineties cause I am commenting on the film set it off that Queen Latifah's in. So I did try to like infuse a bit of like nineties elements and like the way I chose, like I chose kind of like a nineties filter and that's kind of what he received from it. And he really likes that. So and I feel like everyone's going to get something different. <laughs> well, that's what good art is, right? Yeah. Um, that's 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 the nature of art Rochelle so yeah um, so so you've done your job you've done your job as black women people of color uh 
we're not used to talking about mental health issues. Did you have any trepidations at all of being, you know, part of even part of a festival called Rendezvous with Madness? Because, you know, we're not supposed to put those things out there. Yeah. Honest, this has been a struggle that I've had for a really long time. I've been struggling with mental illness uh, for a significant part of my life and fighting with my community, fighting with my family, fighting with doctors to kind of just be like, hey, look at me, this is a problem. I don't think I'm okay, has just been something I'm so used to that when it came to this, it kind of like became fuel for, you know, like this is just the next step in that process for me. Um, I mean, not to say it's not scary, like it is still terrifying, uh, but I think also in some ways I'm, I'm more terrified by the, by the, the weight of it, you know, like I, I feel like I don't want to say anything or represent anything in a way that's saying like, this is what mental illness looks like for everyone or for all black people or whatever. Um, and I also want to like acknowledge the privilege that I do have. I wasn't able to kind of touch on colorism or anything in, you know, this version of the piece, but that's definitely uh, next steps. And talking about the fact that even though I have struggled and I have had to like fight through, I have had a decent amount of access compared to others. And while maybe it took like three appointments or four appointments to say, hey, I have depression or hey, like something else is wrong with me. Can you like check this out? It did eventually happen. And for a lot of black women, especially who have darker skin tones, it, it doesn't even like come up as part of the conversation. It's just kind of considered part of, um, you know, a personality to, to continue like, to, to fight, to be angry or reserved or sullen and like not actually be able to experience the emotions of, that they're feeling. And while you, I understand- I have a, a question here. I'm sorry to interrupt mm -hmm. you. Um, yeah. You mentioned being a woman of darker skin tone. What does that mean for listening audience who may not comprehend exactly what that means? Sure. So um, myself, I like I have a lighter skin tone. I'm, I, I would say like I'm a more of a light brown, I guess. Mm -hmm. And, you know, colorism is exists. So that would be, you know, darker skinned black women, um, the ones who, you know, experience a lot more racism based on like the color of their skin. Um, and not just because they are. I mean, I. I don't know. I was going to use quotation marks and say like black, but like, you know, like there, there's racism that, you know, ex is experienced by all black folks. But when it comes to beauty and what's considered beautiful, it kind of ranges from the closer you are to whiteness, the more accepted you become. So the darker you are in your skin tone, the further you are from, you know, the white gaze or white expectations. So do you feel you've had um, better opportunities or more opportunities uh, to get help because of your lighter skin, skin tone? Recently, I've started thinking about it and potentially I have. Um, 
you know, I'm also like plus sized and queer and, you know, those have their boundaries in themselves. But, you know, I, I am seeing recently how colorism does play a huge effect on things. And um, I think, you know, I was kind of more ignorant to the fact because my, my, like all of my mother has darker skin and my grandmother and like, you know, all of my closest family members. And I always felt like I was the odd one out because I didn't really look like all of these people in my family who I think are gorgeous and beautiful and wonderful and, and, um, you know, but like my experience isn't everyone's experience. And so I've had to, you know, relearn some things and, and consider my privileges. And while it's been hard, I can see definitely how it is harder for um, other Black women. Mm-hmm. So you're the um, co-artistic director of Low Hanging Fruit. Yes. So it's a emerging uh, theater company. It's We're kind of taking a slight hiatus at the moment just because one really important part of our company is, you know, we want to be accessible for folks with mental illness. And the reality is that a lot of our company is experiencing trauma and reliving trauma. So, so what's most important to us is trying to figure out how to maintain productivity and, and to keep going and helping other people, but not forgetting to help ourselves and to consider how we communicate best. And so it's a lot of starting from the foundation. We um, are trying to create theater for marginalized artists primarily those who have mental illness, uh, are disabled, and have varying abilities who feel like they're not being represented on stage. Um, I particularly am most interested in like telling the stories of Black art, like Black stories, um, when it comes to those who are disabled and mentally ill. Um, there's also a significant push to talk, tell queer stories as well, because uh, all of our members are also queer. So we're taking on a lot. <laughs> uh, yes. Like it is important <laughs> to be like, <laughs> that's also the thing, like it's important to be a niche company, but whenever we're like talking, we're like, so we're doing all of these things. And so I guess, yeah, we're trying to like figure out the best way to kind of market that and figure out how to balance the needs of the community and the people that we want to reach out to. And what, like, it is a lot, but then at the end of the day, I think about it and I'm like, I'm black, I'm plus sized, I'm queer, I have mental illness, like this is exactly what I need. And usually I feel like I have to go to like five different places to be able to um, comment on all those parts of me. And it would be really nice to just go to one place you know, that's what we're trying to accomplish. Um, I think we're just trying to find the words to say that. It is difficult when you're trying to, you know, be inclusive. There are different ways to interpret that word inclusive. And, um, and you're just gonna, and you're gonna do that by putting on the work that you're doing. And also by outreaching to the people who share your commonness to be part of that audience makeup. 
that is an act of revolution in itself. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I'm coming to, to, to discover that, especially like as I try to push my work forward and continue to work through things and my experiences and, and tell nonfiction and fiction stories, uh, but it's all a learning experience, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So Rendezvous with Madness, um, how can people see your work? They can go on the Workman Arts website and search for the schedule information. And my piece is Queen Latifah, Give Me Strength. Um, And there's uh, links to be able to buy tickets. I'm also doing a panel discussion on uh, October 21st to talk about more of this. (laughs) Talk about, you know, what it's been like being in my body and trying to get the help that I, I want and need. Um, yeah. Rochelle Richardson, thank you for joining me today. Thank you very much. And again, the website for Rendezvous with Madness is workmanarts.com. Workmanarts.com. Click on Rendezvous with Madness for festival details. It runs October the 15th to the 25th online. You're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G.
Letter to a Sister Friend by Ursula Rucker. Bet you thought I was going to play something by Queen Latifah, right? Thank you so much for listening to The More the Merrier. This is Donna G signing off for another week. You can find me on my socials where feedback is welcome. Let me know what you're enjoying, um, some show ideas for the future, at TMTM with Donna G on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And my podcast redcircle.com slash the more the merrier and my home www.ciut.fm Wednesday mornings 1am tell your night owls and early bird friends about the more the merrier